Welcome to The Sunday Soother, a podcast, newsletter, and community about authentic living and compassionate personal development. I'm your host, Katherine Andrews, a life coach, online teacher, and writer focused on self-reflection, mindfulness, and how to create meaning in our everyday lives in practical ways. Join me weekly for conversations about personal growth, spirituality, self-discovery, and self-care, and how we can navigate this messy world with hope and humanity. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the 200th episode of the Sunday Soother podcast. This podcast started with hope and a dream and a prayer and a MacBook a MacBook laptop in January of 2019, though I had wanted to start a podcast for at least a year or two before that. And I started this podcast before I was full-time in my business, before I was anywhere in my business, <laughs> to be honest. I was just a person who was doing it as a hobby because I thought I had some stuff that I wanted to share with the world and I wanted to practice the the craft of podcasting for fun. And so um, let this 200th episode four years later <laughs> be the testament that you too, if you've been thinking about starting a podcast or starting an Instagram or starting a newsletter, you have something to say, whatever that something is, even if nobody's following you quite yet. And this podcast has grown into such a sweet little part of my business. And I won't even say little, I would say most of the people who have decided to work with me are devoted listeners of the podcast. And it's not a huge podcast, it's not cracking any top 100 lists, um, but it has a loyal base of several hundred listeners each week, which to me is a total gem and something that I am thrilled by each and every time that I get feedback from the podcast or hear that you listen to it on your morning walks. Um or if that has helped you in any way. So to celebrate the 200th episode, first, I just want to say thank you for being a listener. If you're at all new here, my name is Katherine Andrews. I'm a life coach, um, person, human, spiritual mentor, sometimes business coach, sometimes dating coach. I coach on all the things for highly sensitive people and people who are thoughtful, introspective, reflective, who want to grow compassionately, who are interested in self-development and are curious about spirituality or are spiritual. And I talk about all these sorts of topics. And today you'll get a wide range of the kinds of stuff I talk about because I'm doing an Ask Me Anything to celebrate 200 episodes. So I had put out an anonymous form. You could ask me anything. And I got tons of good questions. And I'm going to do my best to answer every single one of them. Um, maybe we'll break this into two episodes. I'm kind of going to see how this all goes. But for those of you who submitted questions, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate you listening. I really appreciate you taking the time to to send in a question. And let's go. I got so many funny questions too. <laughs> so um, in particular, I'll just start off with this, this first one, because I think it's funny and silly. If you had a magic wand, what word or phrases would you eat? <laughs> Example, just checking in, I probably would get rid of the phrase gentle reminder, because the reminder is never truly gentle. <laughs> <laughs> and I am 100% guilty of having used this phrase dozens, if not hundreds of times in my life. And I'm just trying to be more straightforward about it if I need to remind somebody, hey, a reminder, even just a reminder. Even the concept of reminding is exhausting. Um, but gentle reminder, I would just like scratch that from the face of the earth because there's something so passive aggressive about it. But at the same time, you have to consider 
you know, a lot of the softened women's language we use, we have to use, otherwise we'll be called a bitch. So I kind of also understand where it comes from and its need. So I'm torn, I guess. But if we didn't live under patriarchy, I'd get un- I'd get rid of gentle reminder. <laughs> so, okay, I think this is a great question to start with. How did you come to this child, or not start with, but, um, you know, continue. How did you come to this child-free life? Was it an intentional decision early on or was it an accident that became aligned with who you are or some other option or answer? So for anybody who doesn't know, I'm 43 and I do not have children and I do not plan on having children. Um, I don't plan on fostering, adopting, having biological children. And I also always say with the caveat that you just never know where life is going to take you and people's circumstances and decisions change all the time. But I check in with myself about this, you know, pretty frequently, and it's definitely still a hard no, (laughs) but it certainly wasn't always the case. Um, I 100%, you know, a lot of my focus where I got my start in my business was talking about intentional living and being more intentional in the kind of lives that we create. And the reason that that's my focus now is because I was on huge autopilot for most of my life. I did really well in high school. I did really well in college. I went and got a master's degree that I did really well in. I started a very successful career path. Um, I was obsessed with getting married after a potent heartbreak in my late 20s of my first love. I got engaged in my early 30s, but that engagement ended. And then I went on kind of a roller coaster of several years of like pretty awful dating circumstances up and down and breakups and being dumped and all sorts of things. Um, And along the way, I was dating with a single-minded goal of I need to get married and have children. (laughs) But I never had actually paused to consider if that was what I truly wanted. I just assumed it's what everybody in my family had always done. I mean, there are a couple people in my extended family who who, uh, didn't get married, didn't have children, but really the primary model for my immediate family, for all of my friends around me was getting married and having kids. And so to me, it was just like a checklist, like this is something that you just need to do. But as I got into my late 30s, it became clear that if I wanted to have children, I was going to have to make this an intentional decision, aka I was going to have to decide to, you know, become a single mother by choice um, and or freeze my eggs or anything like that. And I was about 36, 37, and I contacted a fertility clinic and then I just never followed up. And then I was like, I don't want to do this. (laughs) I was like, I don't think... I want children. I had never paused to ask myself the question, do I actually want children? Do I want to change my lifestyle enormously? Do I want to be a mother? And the answer, as I explored it over the course of a year or two from then on into my mid to late 30s was was no, I don't think I do. And that became pretty clear to me, evidently. And I kind of just let go of the idea that I was supposed to have children. And I let go of the shame around it. Because I think what I had really been trying to run away from was shame that I was different, shame that I couldn't seem to achieve this milestone that everybody else in my friend group, my family, society seemed to achieve so easily and naturally. Um, and when I really investigated like what it would look like if I were to have children on my own, It was not a life I wanted to live and it was not something I could afford either. Um, And yeah, and that's pretty much been my decision ever since. You know, every once in a while, like every once in a while, I'll be a day or two late on my period and I'm like, oh God. And it's just never like, well, what if this could be interesting? It's always like, oh God, (laughs) sort of feeling. And I just don't think it's for me. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I think I think I am an extremely maternal person and my maternal energy, however, is best used towards my client and audience. 
Um, I am dedicated to my work and I'm not saying at all, like, obviously you can be a mother and super dedicated to your work. We have multiple, you know, millions of examples of that. But for me, it, it was like, my work is pretty all consuming in a way. I think that I I wouldn't be able to dedicate myself to it the way I would want to, if I had a child, um, my nervous system is just like not set up for children. Like there's nobody I love more in the world than my niece and nephews, but after spending a day or two with them, if I'm babysitting, I'm just like fried, you know, the sensory aspects of being a parent for me are, are very stimulating too, too much. The money aspect, you know, it's pretty nice to have more disposable income because I'm not spending, you know, 90% of what I'm making on, on childcare or daycare or anything like that. Um, and so I think the answer to your question, Anonymous, was it was an accidental and an intentional decision. (laughs) So, and I think that's the case for a lot of people. Um, and right now I feel really aligned with it. I, you know, maybe I'll look back when I'm older and have regrets or if I, you know, I'm alone in a nursing home and wish that I'd had somebody to take care of me. But what I do do is I, I spend a ton of, I'm really close to my niece and nephews and, or I try to be, you know, as I get older and into their teenagehood, they're, they're not as into me. Um, but I try to remain present in their lives, not because I hope that one day they'll take care of me in the nursing home, um, but just because I think there is such a place for people who aren't parents in children's lives. And I genuinely, really honestly love children. I think they're the most magical beings on this earth. And I think we we do dirty by them um, in society. And I think there is a beautiful role for the the aunties and the uncles of a life. And it's one that I've learned to embrace wholeheartedly. I'm 100% living my life of like the, the spiritual aunt who gives them crystals for Christmas. <laughs> and they love it. And I love it too. So yeah, I hope that answers that. Okay, uh, this question asks, how do you balance having a healthy lifestyle while also having fun? For example, I don't drink alcohol, I don't like to eat dairy, gluten, or sugar, and I genuinely love going to bed early. I also love my friends dearly. But when they ask me to go out to dinner at 7 p.m. at a restaurant where I know there won't be food I want to eat, I'm never quite sure what to do. I don't want to feel like crap and also don't want to miss hanging out. Um, I totally understand. And also, maybe I'm not the best person to answer this question because I'm a hermit who almost sees nobody and doesn't have much fun in her life. <laughs> I'm like, a, you know, something I, I would really love to invite more into my life is joy and pleasure. And I struggle with it because I'm a very, I know I'm, I'm happy and I'm lighthearted here on this podcast, but I'm a very serious person and very hardworking and I'm not naturally good at having a ton of fun. Um, inviting a lot of joy and pleasure into my life. A lot of my life is, is work and responsibility. Um, I'm a Capricorn. I have a lot of Capricorn and Virgo in my chart, so I can take things very seriously. And that said, um, you know, I, I'm also somebody who tries to stay away from dairy, gluten, sugar, alcohol, though I definitely, you know, have them sometimes. And I don't know if I have a good answer to this. I mean, the question, I mean, for me, like something I'm trying to do is just like keep up a pleasure tracker in my life. Because sometimes I think we assume the only things that will give us pleasure are, you know, alcohol or sugar, or sweet foods. Um, and I, I don't think that's the case. And I think, but I do think we have to invite intentionally into our lives awareness of the other ways in which we have fun. Um, so what's fun to you outside of going out to dinner with your friends? Um 
What's that? What's fun to you outside of going to a bar with your friends? And I agree, this is a hard one because our default mode for m- much of us and our friends to have fun is to go to a bar, to go to dinner. And I guess what I'm asking you or anybody else who resonates with this question to consider is like, what gives you fun? Just you and you alone. And then how can you begin to maybe invite your friends into that process? Um, For me, like funny group texts give me pleasure. Like I love being quick-witted on texts with friends and sharing articles and discussing them over text or voice note. Um, hiking in nature. And so I, I try to hike once a month in nature with girlfriends. Um, you know, and I think naturally sometimes you tend to eventually become friendly with people who share some of your, your health values too. So a lot of the women that I hang out with don't drink or try to avoid gluten and sugar too. And so, um, you know, we have those manners as well. You know, one of the things that used to be so fun in my life, and I actually like this, this would be hard to do given your question, but it was a cookbook club. Um, and, you know, a bunch of girlfriends and I would get together maybe every six weeks or so and, uh, cook from a particular cookbook. And so, you know, obviously if you're avoiding gluten or sugar, that could be hard, but you could find a cookbook that perhaps did those sorts of things or have a potluck that was like that. Um, so I don't know. I don't think I have a great answer to this question. I totally feel you on this one. Um, it's something I really struggled with more when I lived in DC. And now that I live in the, you know, in a tiny village and I don't really see many people and I'm my true hermit introvert self, I don't have to deal with this problem as much, but I do think our society over relies on eating out and drinking as methods of fun. And we kind of have to learn to get creative to ask ourselves what, what are actual joy and pleasure in our lives and then try to incorporate it more. So next question what is your writing process like for your newsletter essays and any tips on where to get started with essay writing? Um, so this, it was kind of like the biggest tip I can give down is just, is just like sit down and do the damn thing. Like I guarantee you every week I do not want to write the Sunday either, but I have incorporated into my schedule and I've prioritized it because it's the biggest driver of my business and it's a creative outlet. So what the writing process looks like for the Sunday either these days is I do my, you know, morning routine. I usually do my stuff, go out for a walk on a Monday, and I've blocked off all of Mondays for writing and content creation. And so the Sunday Soother is the first piece of content that I usually sit down and write. And so I have a bank of essay ideas that I keep on Evernote, but you could also use something like Notion or just a notebook. And I kind of like review them every Monday morning and I'm like, which is sparking my interest. And sometimes none of them are. And sometimes one will like immediately jump out or sometimes I'll have been on a walk that morning and an idea will have come through and I just want to sit down and write that. And then I just go, like, I just write. It it usually takes me one to two hours to write a Sunday Soother essay. I kind of just fly through it. There's not a ton of reflection. There's not a lot of um, editing. (laughs) So, um, sometimes what I will do, especially when I have a bigger essay idea at hand is in my Evernote, I keep bullet points of kind of the, the outline that I want to write about and the major points I want to touch on. Um, I would consider that my writing process is very channeled, I think is the best way to put it. When I start typing, I'm just going, um, sentences will appear in my head. I, I can, you know, I've talked about being, um, intuitive and psychic on this podcast before. And there's like clairaudient and clairvoyant. And I know some people, I know writers who see the sentences in their head before they write them. 
And I know writers who hear the sentences in their head before they write them. And I just know the sentence in my head. And it's like simultaneously, I'm knowing it in my head, and then I'm typing it out. And that's kind of how it goes. And I'll go pretty fast. I'm somebody who doesn't mind putting a messy first draft out there. And I'm typing it into Evernote as well. Um, You know, or, you know, Google Drive or wherever is like kind of a cloud based service is good to type on, I think, just in case (laughs) it it, like disappears. Um, Or your your program crashes if you're just doing it locally. And, um, and then I kind of will refine and edit from there. There's a light editing process that goes on, but I pretty much consider my first draft is usually close to my final product. I just don't, I don't overthink it. And you may be like, well, how do I not overthink? I mean, you have to practice not overthinking. So I would, I would say the best and biggest tip I can give for anybody interested in essay writing is to do the morning pages journaling practice from the artist's way. I mean, I'm here, everything you see is because of the artist's way. <laughs> And so I don't know anybody who's who's listened to this podcast and hasn't done the artist's way yet. Like, you know, what are you waiting for? Because it's like literally the only thing that I recommend with such consistency and I credit all of my success to. Morning Pages will give you, Morning Pages, in case you somehow don't know, is a practice where, you know, generally first thing in the morning or close to first thing in the morning, you get up and you write by hand for three pages about anything you want to. And I credit the practice of just having that constant flow open to my essay writing practice. I do morning pages. Another great place to look is Simone Gray Soul is a marketing coach. And she has popularized something she calls the garbage post challenge. And this is for business and life coaches and other kinds of coaches to get out of their head about creating content. But she just asks you to like write about literally anything and publish it on social media for 30 days. And so I really think for anybody who's wanting to write more essays or write more content generally, like you cannot underestimate the impact of momentum enough and starting with shitty first drafts and just like writing literally whatever. So whether it's a morning pages practice where you're writing literally wherever, or you're posting publicly and you give yourself a challenge, like I'm going to send out four newsletters this month and I'm just going to send out about whatever they are. um, That's a great way of being there. There's something about turning on the spigot. And I think my spigot is like full on, right? And that's not to say I don't get um, writer's block or, you know, stuck on ideas. I definitely do, but I keep an idea bank. I, I do morning pages. Um, I'm not too concerned about shitty first drafts. Um, I think going on long walks is really helpful to a writing practice, um, especially long walks where you're not necessarily listening to anything or you're listening to podcasts or music that spark your creative juices. Um, I can't tell you how many ideas I've gotten in an idea for a Sunday Soother essay when I was just rambling along listening to a random podcast and it just is like, oh, I need to write about this. And then I'll like quickly voice note it to myself until I can get back to my computer. I think spaciousness and having space in our schedules is is hugely underrated in writing. We need that spaciousness for the ideas to come in. So think about everything as a spigot. Like, is the water moving? Like, are the pipes clear? Are they open? Do you have spaciousness? Do you have a practice where you're non-judgmental about your writing, morning pages, or just posting where you're not overthinking what you're writing? And that's where I would start if those help. Next question. What's one spiritual or witchy practice that holds absolutely no appeal for you? Hmm... I mean, I'm pretty much open to anything. I'll really try anything. I think my spiritual practice has 
evolved and deepened so much because I'll just be like, oh, you think I should do this thing in the dark woods at midnight involving a pig's ear? Yeah, why not? I'll give it a shot. (laughs) Not that I've ever done anything like that. Um, But I'm open to all sorts of practices and ideas and approaches. Um, Curiosity has really fueled my spiritual practice in a way. Um, I guess like, what if I could... If I could, like, one thing I don't really like is some of, this is, um, I guess, more a manifestation practice, but I think what it, it really is, and I don't like it, is something like, I don't know if you've ever heard of, like, the the 369 or the 555 type manifestation practices, where they, like, involve you writing down your manifestation, like, hundreds of times in a row, in an order to try to get your, like, subconscious on board. And it's like, I am so grateful for my Lamborghini like, and then you write that over, like, I, I can't remember the structures, but something about 369 is like, or 555, you'll have to Google it, but like, you do it like 55 times a day for, I don't know, it's crazy. It's like just writing it down, like by brute force. And like, I look at those sorts of practices, and I'm like, I would literally rather, like, do anything <laughs> than do that forced kind of writing. So any like spiritual or witchy practices that are like so dogmatic and involve tons of structure. My spiritual practices, like my best ones are, are open to clay, to creativity and play and interpretation. And um, so anything that's like so restrictive and it's like, it has to be exactly like this is not something I would ever be into. What are your favorite charities these days? Well, to be honest, there aren't tons. I think my I'm trying to look locally for new charities around here. There's something there's a preservation fund for my town, which is a historical town. Um, there's some food insecurity stuff I'm looking into, but like I think this is maybe going to be weird or triggering, but like I don't know that I like spending my money on charities as much anymore because I like I like spending money and I like doing it in purpose-driven ways. And I think for me, a a more preferred way that I've really started to enjoy spending my money is just spending it on practitioners that align with my values who are marginalized communities. So working with um, women of color has been one of my favorite, favorite things to do. Women of color entrepreneurs is probably like whether I'm using them as um, not using them, but employing them and paying them as like a healer or a business coach or, um, you know, a retreat host or anything like that. Um, consciously choosing women of color to like hold space for me and be the people who I give my money to in, in terms of from my business is one way that I really enjoy spending my money. And that's weird because that's not charity. It's capitalism. I don't know. And now I'm realizing my language sounds all sorts of fucked up around this. But I think that's really fun and rewarding for me because I think entrepreneurship is like one of the single best ways any women, women of color, any marginalized identities or communities can begin to make money for themselves. And if I'm a white woman entrepreneur, like using my money to invest in other entrepreneurs for their services who are people of color or marginalized communities and spread the word about them and like share, you know, refer them to uh, my audience or to other people, that's extremely satisfying to me. Um, So Kind of not an answer to that particular question, but I hope it gives you a peek into like thinking about how I like redistribute and spend my money these days. This is funny. Which historical period or place do you think you would feel most comfortable living in? 
I think the historical period and place I would feel most comfortable living in is the 2005 edition of the Pride and Prejudice movie with Keira Knightley and Matthew, uh, what's his face? (laughs) But it has to be the fictional one, because I honestly can't imagine going back in history and anything being better than it is now for women, even though it sucks so much now for women. Maybe there's like a pre-patriarchal, like, pre-Jesus time where I'm like a druid or something. (laughs) Like, or a powerful priestess, that I could totally get into. <laughs> but it has to be pre-patriarchal. Um, what's the lesson you are learning over and over again is the next question. Um, burn, release, burnout, control, responsibility, seriousness. I work myself over into burnout. Like, I try to control situations, especially around work, over and over again. Um, I hold a tight grip on things. And so what does this look like? For me, it looks like, okay, if only I perfect my morning routine, then my life will be great. Or if only I like double down on promoting this offer, then I'll make enough money to feel safe. And every time I I do it to burnout and I do, do it to kind of tears in a way, and I'm like, I should just soften in the first place. Like I'm I'm learning to move towards softness and joy over and over again. So what that looks like on a practical level is, you know, doing the things that light me up in my business. And of course, there's responsibility involved in that things like paying my taxes or showing up for my clients. Um, But not like doing it to the extent where I burn myself out. And instead, when I have moments or pockets of time, um, going to see a movie in the middle of the afternoon, or booking a trip for myself, or, you know, canceling the meeting when I don't feel like having the meeting and it's a total obligation and not aligned with me. Um, you know, I suspect I will continue. I've been in business for, um, this is my fourth year and I suspect I've, this like lesson has come up for me about 52 times <laughs> in those four years. And I suspect more and more it will continue to come up. I really think that some of us have core wounds that get visited on a spiralic basis. They're not ever really t- totally healed and resolved, but they're just addressed at deeper and deeper levels. And burnout and control for me is probably the biggest one that I have. The next question is, what shift in yourself are you most proud of? Um, hmm. I think I'm just so much more vulnerable and self-compassionate than I used to be. I really used to be somebody who was obsessed with presenting an image to the world. Like I would never, I go on Instagram without makeup these days. And that's something like I would never have done 10 years ago. Um, And I I talk openly about things that feel hard for me. Um, I cry in front of people. And these are things that were like not things that were in my reality. And I didn't even know that I I needed them to be in my reality. Like when I was in my early to mid thirties, I didn't know how kind of like brittle and armored I'd become. I I had no conscious awareness of it. I just thought I had to maintain this facade. Um, I had to do things alone. I had to work hard. Um, I didn't even, wasn't really even open to myself about like how much I was struggling in a lot of ways. And I still struggle with that to some extent. I'm still out of touch with sometimes my feelings or my pain. Um, and I still have like a hyper independent streak, but I'm so much more willing to ask for help or share or show sides of myself that are definitely not perfect or image conscious. And yeah, and just be self-compassionate. And I do that by talking to myself a lot of the time, like a five-year-old and journaling to myself as a five-year-old um, or a seven-year-old or a 12-year-old, right? Literally saying those things I would say to a child to myself or writing them to myself and then treating myself accordingly. So I think that's a huge shift. I'm really proud of that because when you're codependent and people-pleasing and image-obsessed, that kind of stuff is hard to pull off. <laughs> so... 
What are your top books to read for someone starting on their self-help journey? 100% I would read and do The Artist's Way. Uh, sorry to be such a broken record, but it really is it really is that thing, <laughs> you know? It really is that life-changing if you haven't done it already. It's and reading self-help books will get you guys nowhere. That's why The Artist's Way is so important because it asks you to apply what it's teaching you through journaling and exercises and embodiment. Um, the other book, though, that I would recommend is Healing Your Lost Inner Child by Robert Jackman. And I teach this inside my Soothe Mastermind. And again, once again, you cannot simply read the book. That will g- gain you some self-awareness, but not very much change. You have to do the exercises. You have to do the exercises that he asks you to do. Um, but I think for anybody that was recommending starting uh, a self-help, a little bit more of a self-discovery journey, you couldn't go wrong with those two books. Congratulations on 200 episodes. How has recording and publishing 200 episodes changed you? Well, I think there's a huge element of self-trust and self-promise and whatever the opposite of self-abandonment is in recording this many episodes. I mean, over four years, it's about 50 episodes a year, Um, right? (laughs) And that's huge. You know, I've, I've haven't really missed that many podcasts. Definitely have taken breaks here and there. And those have been needed and desired and good to take breaks from. Um, I mean, my voice has developed enormously. My speaking voice, you wouldn't know it, but I was a hundred percent throughout almost all of my corporate career. That person who was very scared to speak up in meetings because I was so nervous about my own ideas. I was a terrified public speaker. Every once in a while I would, I would public speak or have to public speak for my jobs. And it was, you know, a sweaty mess. And now um, public speaking to me is is a joyful and delightful thing. I truly feel that my, my channeling abilities, again, I talk about channeling and writing. And when I say channeling, all I mean is that I really don't think about what I'm saying as I say it. It kind of just comes through. And it's it's difficult to explain to somebody who hasn't experienced that. And I really don't think about what I'm writing as I'm writing. It just kind of comes through. Um, so it's improved my channeling abilities and what am I channeling? I mean, my own brain's ideas, ideas from the universe, who knows? Um, and so it's put me in touch with that, that channeling ability, that intuitive ability to say what's true for me right in the moment. Um, and to articulate my ideas right in the moment too. It stopped me from overthinking because when you're on a podcast, you know, I did start out recording the podcast from scripts. I would write scripts first. And now what I do is I will write out maybe a few bullet points and then I kind of just let myself go. So there's a lot of self-confidence that's also emerged as, um, as a nice element from, from recording the podcast for so long too. So, and it's changed my business. I mean, I really never thought about podcasts as a, as a business venture. I mean, obviously that's why a lot of people do podcasts, but for me, it was more a creative outlet. And I think it's, it's just created so much intimacy for people who are interested in working with me. They really have a sense that of my authenticity, that they can trust me, that um, they feel closer to me. And so it's really been a beautiful uh, boon to my business as well. Okay. Got to stop and have a sip of water. So the next question you're constantly changing and evolving. I love how you approach your new interests with curiosity, yet I am so afraid of noticing changes in myself. How can I stop resisting these changes in me and embrace who I'm becoming? Such a good question. Well, like anything, I would turn towards nature. Nothing in nature is ever static. Um, It is always growing. And so there's nothing wrong with growing and changing. Um, And I trust nature. Like 
if there's anything I trust in this world, it's nature. <laughs> and if I follow the models of nature, I cannot go wrong, right? Um, it's it's abnormal to stagnate. You know, anything that's that's stagnating is is unhealthy in nature. And anything that's changing and evolving is is the normal and healthy way of nature. And so for me, that gives me a lot of comfort and a lot of reassurance as I change. Um, my, you know, people talk a lot about wanting to improve their intuition. And I often give the recommendation that your intuition is curiosity based. Your curiosity is your intuition. And so I trust my curiosity as part of my intuitive practice. And what it looks like to trust my curiosity is I'll usually come across a person, a podcast, a book, or an idea that really just like sparkles a little bit for me. And then I'm off and down the rabbit hole. And that's like maybe the ADHD hyper focus or whatever. But I learn, like, for example, y'all, you know, have heard me talk a lot about feng shui and home energy, and I've taught on it, and I'm taking a certification course on it. And it will 100% be wrapped more into my coaching and my teaching. Um, and that just started with like a podcast, <laughs> a book or a podcast I stumbled across several years ago. And I, I trust my curiosity as the next step of my evolution. I wouldn't be curious about something if it weren't meant to change me and for to evolve me and to lead me forward on, on what's next. So I would just, you know, trust your curiosity in this evolution. Um, I wonder, I'm so afraid of noticing changes in myself. How can I stop resisting these changes in me and embrace who I'm becoming? I mean, a journaling practice you can adopt here. I mean, you have to kind of like know who you're becoming. And that's where like something like archetype work can be really helpful. I teach uh, my method of teaching archetype work inside of my Soothe Mastermind. We design, and I do it in my one-on-one coaching too, um, for anybody who's interested. We we design like the new the new narrative, the new archetype that you are becoming, and it creates a bridge for you to become that person. So write down like what you're just write down what you're noticing about yourself, right? And like, what is that pointing you towards? Are you becoming more playful? Are you becoming more joyful? Or are you becoming more serious? You know, are you becoming more powerful? What are you noticing? And then a journal prompt is like the person who is becoming this would do XYZ today. And then journal every day, like the person who I am becoming would do these things today. And you kind of just allow yourself to shift. I often talk about this as um, I teach this in my Soothe Mastermind, the concept of like the garden and the gardener. And so I think we have this duty to ourselves in this human life to treat ourselves both as the garden we're cultivating and the gardener who is cultivating the garden. And it's, you know, kind of a strange trippy experience when you're both the person who is tending to yourself and the thing that is being tended to. But I think of myself as a garden. And then I also have the responsibility of the gardener to cultivate the changes, to prune, to weed, to give nourishment, to observe, you know, what are what is the natural tendency of the garden? Like, where can I help it embrace these natural tendencies? Which parts are growing faster? Which parts might need no, no, more intention? So thinking of yourself in this dual manner might be helpful too. The next question. You've spoken before about having depression and taking antidepressants. Can you talk more about how diagnosis and meds came into your life? How did you differentiate between being highly sensitive and needing tools, grounding, journaling, EFT to regulate your emotions versus needing medication? So I finally decided to go to therapy when I was 30. I was having constant panic attacks, though I didn't even really realize they were panic attacks at the time. I had started dating somebody new and it was causing all sorts of like flashbacks and terror to my breakup, which had been very painful for me. And I was just like, something in me was like, there has to be a better way. And so I 
somebody, uh, a friend I knew was seeing a therapist. She referred me to her. I remember like leaving work in the middle of the day, walking like a mile away so nobody would hear me, getting on my cell phone and leaving her like a whispered panic message. Like I felt so scared, so ashamed to go to therapy. And, you know, I, I went, I got myself there and she was amazing. That was a therapist I worked for for almost a decade. But like a few months into this, she's like, she's like, I think you have really bad anxiety. And I was like, what? (laughs) And, you know, I don't really now looking back, agree with like diagnoses in in therapy that can be so reductive and, but they can be helpful too. So it really just depends on if they're helpful or restrictive to you. But she's like, you have generalized anxiety disorder. I want you to consider anti-anxiety medication. And I was like, okay. And so I got on an anti-anxiety medication called Pristique, P-R-I-S-T-I-Q. And I took that on and off for much of my 30s. I would say between like 30 and 36 or 37. And I think it helped. (laughs) But I don't know. The, The truth was, I was really anxious and I wish I had um, tried out, I wish I'd known about different things that reduce anxiety, like breathing exercises and EFT tapping and your diet plays like a huge component in it and getting out in nature and journaling. And it was just like, you know, right away I went to medication and I had to learn these other tools on my own over the course of my 30s. And so, you know, And the thing is, is like, I don't regret taking it. I'm so glad. I think it helped. It's hard to say, right? When you're so anxious, it's hard to know is something really helping you or not. Um, You know, I'm grateful for medication in in today's world. I know tons of people who have been helped by anti-anxiety medication, by antidepressants. Xanax has been a lifesaver for me more than once, um, especially in situations where I'm getting totally panicky. Um, and then there are also like lots of great natural tools too, passion flower or other, you know, teas and, and herbals and plants and stuff that can really help you too. And those breathing exercises and all of these other things as well. And so, um, I don't know that there's an either or either like you get to do these things that are just for a highly sensitive person or a human, like you just need to regulate journal, breathe more, or you need medication. Like, I think there's probably space for, for both of those. Um, and I think, yeah, I don't know. I like have a hundred percent considered also going back on medication. I feel like I'm going through menopause, perimenopause, (laughs) not sure what's going on with my body. My mood has like kind of like cratered in a way that's not as bad as it has been in the past, but definitely noticeable. Um, my rumination is kind of out of control and negative spiraling has really come up strong in the last six to 12 months, I would say. And I have some friends who are a bit older than me, more in their late forties, early fifties, who've been on Lexapro, um, to help them get through the mental and emotional struggles that can often come with menopause. And that's something I would totally consider, um, and yeah, so, and I know lots of people like I've had family members on Zoloft. Um, so I'm not sure if there's a question here. Okay. So your question was, how did you, so that's how diagnosis and meds came into my life. And then how did you differentiate between being a highly sensitive person and needing tools versus needing medication? Again, I think you can have tools and medication. Um, I just think like there's nothing I won't try. Is it tools? Great try them. Is it medication? Sure. I'll consider trying that too. Like if I feel like my tools aren't working. So reducing yourself from any like either or black and white thinking. And of course, a ton of people 
can really feel a lot of shame around deciding to go on medication. And I ask yourself to release yourself from that too. Um, It's all a big experiment, right? Like we can try these things. We're taking in data. Does it help? Yes. Great. Keep doing it. Does it not help? Okay. You know, try some different tools, try some different medication. And I know that can be frustrating. I wish there were like, you know, an exact answer for solving anxiety or depression, but it's always a constant, I think, iteration and experiment. And it's super individual. Um, I don't think there's one blanket statement for healing anxiety and depression that that can be applied to anybody. And that's frustrating because I know we want easier answers. But I was like on the Reddit uh, subreddit for menopause (laughs) the other day. And there were women in there talking about how they'd been on antidepressants for 20 years. But when menopause hit, they totally stopped working. And now they're trying to figure out something else. And this is kind of the truth of the human body. And, you know, it, the the phases it goes through, there's never going to be like one distinct answer. Um, so I hope you can find liberation in that and find what's right for you. Um, oh, I didn't read the whole question. Uh, the, the whole, the addendum to that question was, I realize it's so different for everyone, but have always appreciated your perspective. For context, I believe I'm a highly functional person, but also prone to low-grade anxiety and depression. I question whether my perfectionism prevents me from seeking out medication because I believe I can self-regulate. Uh, yeah, well, you know, what you could do is just try it, right? Like you could just tell yourself you're just going to try medication for, you know, sometimes your psychiatrist or doctor will want you to be on it for a certain amount of time, but it doesn't have to be a forever thing. You get to take data, you get to observe yourself, you get to notice and you just get to try. This is what I'm thinking about with, with Lexapro or whatever a doctor would possibly recommend me is like, why not try it? If it helps, that would be amazing. And if it doesn't help, oh, well, (laughs) you know, I'll just go back to the way it was before or try a different medication. So I hope that helps a little bit. Okay. I love the Sunday Soother and I listen to it during either my showers or my evening walks. Oh, that's nice. But so many of the things that I want to do, I can never find the time because all waking moments of my life seem to be hijacked by screens. And as an anxious ADHD woman, I'm stuck in a loop of fear and inertia. That's why I haven't taken any of your workshops yet. I'm afraid I won't be able to put them into practice. Any advice on how to get out of this technological addiction hellscape? Oh, gosh. Well, trust me, I can relate. Um, Just remember that phones and screens are designed to be addictive and they are powerful. And so giving yourself grace around how much you might be on them. They're literally kind of a drug. They are addictive. So it's not that you are like you know, lacking virtue or morals or power. It's just that these things are really powerful and they're really hard. I mean, I wonder if you have tried any nervous system regulation practices, um, you know, whether it's just simple vagus nerve breathing or um, there's some great like neck and eye movements that you can do. You can Google on YouTube for like vagus nerve stimulation because kind of what I'm reading off your question is you're stuck in a nervous system response of freeze. Um, and if your nervous system is is in that place, it can be really hard to, to do. Um, freeze is like, I mean, it's the frozen state of the nervous system. You know, procrastination is a freeze response. Not being able to put things into action is often a freeze response. So I would check, you know, do a little bit of reading about the freeze response. And then the, the next thing you would do is like find the tiniest video you can do. Like sometimes it has to be under 60 seconds or the tiniest exercise you can do that you can commit to on a regular basis. Um, I find that people in freeze who are often wanting to get out of it 
will spend a lot of time researching like an amazing, incredible, like 30 point plan that they know will like solve their procrastination or their freeze issues. But then they're frozen by that very plan because it's like 100 steps long. Um, And it's frustrating to our brains because, you know, our brain doesn't want to believe that doing a 30 second video will literally make any difference, but it actually does. So finding the shortest possible video you can get, the shortest possible breathing exercise, um, reading a little bit more about freeze and doing some eye movements and head movements that can get you out of freeze, um, that can be really powerful. And I mean, of course, another thing is accountability. Like, I mean, I feel like when I recommend this, it can feel a little bit ingenuous because I'm a coach, (laughs) but paying the money to work with a coach um, or somebody who's going to hold you to that accountability, like is often needed. We often do need that accountability to to kind of make the moves that we need in our life. And I think it's perfectly fine to pay for it, you know, Um, but you could also like, are there friends, you know, people who can give you that accountability too? Um, self-accountability, you know, rarely works for highly sensitive people. If you've ever taken Gretchen Rubin's, um, I forget what it's called, but like her habit style thing, you know, a lot of us are what are called obligers, which means we'll only do things when like we have somebody we're obliged to do it for, or we're obliged to report the results to when there's external accountability. So take, don't deny that in yourself. Like I need a ton of external accountability to get things done. Take advantage of it. Just admit you need external accountability and find somebody you could hire to help you out with that, whatever that looks like, or a free resource group or anything like that. But I would try like reading a little bit about the freeze response and checking in if it resonates with the state that your nervous system might be in and then finding the tiniest exercise Um, that you can do. Because I think it's also like brute force cannot help us like uh, unhook from screens or any other addictive substance that we are overusing to emotionally numb out from. Um, So, you know, it's kind of like doing the tiny nervous system regulation because then you're like, ah, I can be without a screen for five minutes. And just Finally, what I'll say is just like let this decoupling from screens and maybe doing some regulation of your nervous system be very slow. Most of us have been stuck in a dysregulated nervous system state for years, if not decades, and the unwinding of it takes, you know, a a good chunk of time over a year, I would say at the very least. And it's a tiny, tiny practices. So you have to have a lot of grace for yourself and count the tiny, 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 tiny wins wherever they are. Okay, I think I have, let's see. Um, maybe like five or six questions. So I think I'm just going to go for it. I was thinking about breaking this into two parts, but if you um, want to break this into two parts, consider this part one, but I'm just going to keep going and we're going to make this a long ass episode. <laughs> so, okay. I see so much of what you practice and endorse manifestation, flower essences, etc., being co-opted by right-wingers, anti-vaxxers, uh, quote unquote, wellness gurus who believe ashwagandha can cure cancer, etc. Does this space holistic life coaching ever feel uncomfortable for you? How do you navigate that as someone with progressive values? Yes, it does. Um, it does. <laughs> That's the short answer. <laughs> and I just try to like, so here, maybe I'll start with a story about this. Like, So I um, have a horrible fear of the dentist. I still do. And there was one period in my 30s where I just didn't go to the dentist for like five years. And then I went to the dentist. I I ginned up the courage. And my coworker gave me a recommendation for a dentist she had just gone to. And this dentist, by all accounts, seemed reputable and professional. And she had a beautiful, like, office. And, you know, she seemed great. She was kind and courteous and professional. And 
when I was in there, she did a cleaning and she's like, oh, you need root canals and you need all your wisdom teeth pulled out. And I was like, okay. And we have to charge it for upfront right now. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and long story short, she ruined my mouth. I had unnecessary root canals. Um, they withheld $5,000 from me for months until I threatened, you know, legal action, basically. Um, the root canals had to be redone by a reputable, like, root canal person. And you wouldn't have known by looking at this woman that she was kind of a scam artist. <laughs> so she had certifications from dentist schools. She had all, you know, the trappings of, of looking like a normal <laughs> dentist. Um, and so my point is that, that there are like scammers and kind of quacks everywhere in, in every field. And so it's really important to hone your discernment for the people that you choose to work with and align it with your values. Um, and that's what I try to do. Because the, the truth is things like manifestation, flower essences, tarot, my truth is, I should say, um, energy work, they work. They're real things. Like I I have had astounding results with many of them. Um, and there are incredibly talented manifestation coaches, energy healers, etc., wellness people, holistic wellness people out there. Um, feng shui works, you know, this kind of stuff. And just like in any other field, there are total scammers and quacks who will take advantage of you and who are going to tell you that, like, if you visualize enough, you can cure your cancer. And you have to practice discernment for what's true for you. Because I think there's an element of, of you know, a lot of these holistic practices are powerful and more people should have um, guidance around how to use them and incorporate them into their life and have people who can teach them how to use them effectively. And the field, you know, is, is also littered with people who will take advantage of you. But the reality is, is that's true of any field. Look how many fucking scammers there are in like what's supposed to be a regulated space like banking or Wall Street, right? Um, or Western medical stuff. You know, there are horrible practitioners there who will gaslight you and dismiss you. Um, so it's not an either or necessarily. There are there are just people who will take advantage you of you and you know, give you information that's that's not going to be useful for you or even harmful for you um, in, in what are quote unquote reputable fields. And then there are people like that in holistic life coaching, holistic wellness coaching too. And so practicing your discernment is one of the most important things you can do. How do you learn to trust a person? And does a person seem to be living, you know, what they're preaching? You know, t- this is why testimonials, reviews are so important, you know, um, and, and then you do take a gamble and a leap if you're deciding to work with somebody in a space like holistic life coaching or holistic wellness or any other area too. But you just try to do your best, your best due diligence. You listen to your intuition. Like with that dentist, I didn't listen to my intuition. Like the second she told me she needed to do root canals and have everything paid up front, all my alarms went off. But I had such people pleasing and fawning. And I had such like, I was just like, well, I don't know. I'm not empowered. She's a dentist. <laughs> that I just went along with it. And I really regretted that. And so kind of went on a, a tangent there. Um, but for me, I, I try to live in integrity. And I'm sure there's moments I don't live up to that. And I think auth- authenticity and transparency and talking honestly about um, the practices that I find and use and how they're powerful and how they changed my life. And then doing my due diligence to get training in them or, you know, practice them on a, on a beta level before I'm really charging money for them is super important. Um, yeah, I don't know. 
so much there, right? Like the the wellness industry has been demonized in a way, the holistic wellness industry has been demonized in a way that I think other industries have not been because they fall under more patriarchal uh, approval and capitalistic approval. You know, the the thing, so there's also that to consider. Again, like things that don't get examined or bashed as much as holistic wellness are as are very bad for us in many ways. Um, and we don't question those spaces quite as much because they're kind of the water that we breathe in. And then we turn to an area like holistic stuff, spiritual stuff, and we will have so much skepticism and cynicism around that area, which can serve us because sometimes it can lead to healthy discernment and that can be important. But sometimes I think, you know, it's almost too much discernment and and figuring out the right level of discernment for each of us individually is is like the best that we can do. Um, yeah, I hope that helps a little bit. That's a great question. Um, I'm having trouble sustaining excitement for making new friends in a new city. I've done a lot of the typical things, join clubs, meetups, but it feels hard to break into new groups. I'm feeling lonely and would love some thoughts around moving forward. Oh, Man, I wish I had an answer to this question. Making friends for me has been uh, a struggle um, generally in my life. So I, you know, I've had a lot of people are like, have have asked me to like teach friendship making. And I'm like, I can't. I don't know how. <laughs> so you're not alone. I mean, for me, I think intention setting around anything is super important. Like when I teach my dating course, um, part of the course is like, I have you do a creative exercise about like writing an ideal day with your your future romantic partner or partners and like really living into that and then writing down like values and all of their characteristics and do I embody those characteristics? And so I think the same thing could be done around friendships. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the time we're trying to create something simply out of action, which is a lot of doing. And we would we would benefit from also doing more intention setting and kind of attracting. Um, and so clarifying our vision, clarifying our intentions for the kind of friends that we want. What does it look like? How do you know they're your friends? What kind of values do they have? What kind of activities are you doing together? And doing a lot of journaling and clarifying around that. And maybe giving yourself a break for um, all the doing, like going to clubs, joining meetups and stuff too. And you know, what I've found with intention setting, you know, paired with some action is that when we clarify the vision, um, and then take, you know, inspired action towards that vision, the universe helps us along a little bit. So it might put into our path, the kind of friends that we want to make, or the kind of opportunities that would lead us to making those friends. Um, but I, I totally feel you. It's just like, I see, a, I see so many people struggle with friendship stuff, and they think it's about them. Um, it's just, it's really you know, I think it can be really hard to make adults after uh, to make friends as an adult after college or after graduate school. And as people get married and have kids, you know, we are shunted into these isolated units. And those of us who uh, don't get married or don't have kids don't often have like a place to go and we watch friendships fall away. Um, Yeah, I mean, I will say I actually think um, if you read blogs or follow influencers, Often, a lot of times, they will have communities. Like, I'm thinking of stuff like cupofjoe.com and Grace Atwood. Um, Grace Atwood, at the very least, has a Facebook group. And they do local meetups. Um, 
Cup of Joe at one point had like a whole thread and a spreadsheet about people who lived in the same cities. Um, Girls Night In, the newsletter, they used to have a Slack and a membership that kind of fell apart, but they're there emerged a new um, Slack out of it. And I've seen people like plan meetups in there. So I think, you know, taking advantage of sites and communities you already like online and seeing like, where is the in-person stuff? Like Sunday Soother, like, oh my God, um, people who have been in my classes and masterminds, like I taught a dating group three years ago, maybe, I think maybe two years ago. And it was like six women or so, and they continue to meet biweekly. And they're they're from like New Jersey and the DC area and Montana. And I found out like in a couple of weeks, they're all meeting together in the DC area and that one's flying in and like, you know, um, you know, so little communities like, like mine on the internet too. Um, but it's not something with an easy answer. So if you're feeling lonely, I totally understand that it, it is a reality that is difficult. It's something I have a hundred percent struggled with. I had a lot of friendship issues in elementary and high school where I felt excluded or, you know, semi bullied by other girls. And that has made friendships a little bit hard for me too. And I really sent an attention this year to kind of heal that female friendship wound. And I got, I got clear on the kind of friends I wanted, what we were doing together. And a lot of that is starting to fall into place too. And some of it is hard. I mean, I live in a hundred person village kind of in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) So the birds are my friends. (laughs) Um, So working on it. I'm right there with you, sweetheart. Okay. How can you tell when fear is something to listen to? Like your intuition is saying this thing you want and are pursuing isn't right for you. And how can you tell when it's fear that needs nervous system emotional regulation and isn't coming from your intuition? Well, one of the best ways is to do regular nervous system regulation. Um, And if your nervous system is on a a more consistent level, more regulated, um, then you can like tell more clearly if it's intuition or if it's fear. Um, I will say fear often comes with a charge. Like fear will dysregulate your nervous system. And so getting to know your nervous system states, like if you join the Sunday Soother membership, we're spending April talking about the highly sensitive person's nervous system. And so like mapping and tracking, like what does it look like when you are dysregulated, when you're in fight flight? Um, And knowing that state and gaining fluency in your nervous system can be really powerful. And then your higher self can tell you, okay, well, this is like you're dysregulated right now. So this probably isn't intuition. Um, and intuition, you know, is generally, I, you know, here's the reality. Intuition can be dysregulating because sometimes it will tell you to do something scary that you don't actually want to do. It may tell you to quit your job. It may tell you to say something to a person, set a boundary. It may tell you to break up with somebody or end a friendship. Um, it may tell you to move across the country and you're like, what the fuck? This is terrifying, right? Like, so, and at that same time, it's, it's, it's a steadier knowing, right? Fear, by the way, is usually worst case scenario type stuff. And intuition is usually like, you should do this thing. (laughs) So that's one clear way of doing it. Okay, just a couple more questions. Um, You mentioned in your newsletter today about the how-to. I've recently been through one of the most challenging episodes in my life. I just discovered my husband of 16 years has been living a secret online life with another woman for the past six months. And plans to continue the relationship while we live under the same roof for budget reasons and other reasons, though we're now separated. We have an 11-year-old son. Oh, I just found this out four weeks ago. I'm so sorry. And I've been moving through a lot of emotion. 
I know deep in my soul that in order for my own healing and in order not to traumatize my son, I need to alchemize the feelings of agony, despair, and injustice so that this does not escalate. My question is how. I have many tools in my toolbox, and I'm a very grounded and wide per- wise person, and I'm cracked open right now in a way that my portal for growth is very present. Um, to refer back to your newsletter, I would love to know some actionable ways to process this in the most healing and helpful way possible. Forgiveness, acceptance, alchemy. I have inklings like the download I received from Mama Cacao today, which is to channel this energy into creativity. I'm writing a book, for example. That's cool. Could you share some of the hows? Okay, well, I'm so sorry. Goddamn. What the fuck? People just continue to surprise me all the time. Um, okay, a couple of things come to mind. One, you know, you're you're saying it's there's budget and other reasons, but my first how would be get out of the house or separate your living spaces. Like, I, I just don't think there's any way to not, like, fester while living under the same roof. Um, and so that's going to look like what it's going to look like. I understand the budgetary implications or maybe, you know, the financial hardships around that. But in your son there, it, I think it will be so much healthier, healthier for your for your son, to for his parents who are going through this to live in... Um, different spaces. Of course, I'm not a parent and I don't really know. Um, but my first how would be like, figure out getting your own space, what that looks like. Um, or getting separate spaces. Maybe it's your husband is the one who who leaves and gets a new space. Um, I mean, even kids who are just going through like kind of garden variety divorce, like when it's just kind of the parents have grown apart and there wasn't an affair or betrayal. no they can sense that stuff. And so I can't imagine this isn't affecting your son by staying in the same home. Um, That said, sometimes a kind of a vibe I'm getting from your question here is like you, and you know, maybe this isn't at all what you're saying or it's not true. So trust your own judgment of mine, of course, but it's kind of like we, a rupture has happened, a crisis in our lives and we want to like, have a powerful and healing experience, but it has to like look a certain way. And it's almost like a form of control that we're trying to have a particular growth experiment in response to the crisis. Um, and what, what I would say is I think, especially after a crisis and a rupture like this, it's just, it's going to be messy. And that's part of what the growth is, is not knowing exactly what to do. Um, and and being in that pain of not knowing, you know, we can't. I what am I trying to say? I'm trying to figure out the 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 words to say this so that they're tender and and loving and like maybe we'll land. But we're not necessarily in control of like how we're going to grow post traumatically, and we can't come up with a roadmap for it. Um, so there's that, and at the same time, of course, there are tools that that we can use to 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 shift and support ourselves. I mean, for me, like what I'll just offer are like my most standard tools for everybody. Um, I mean, and, and of course, I think it's would be amazing to work with a professional. Um, so you have a place to talk this out from a neutral perspective, whether it's a therapist or coach, if that's something that's available to you too. But I mean, journaling is like, you just can't go wrong with journaling. Like, I had a client last year in my Soothe Mastermind who was going through a really horrible um, business breakup, actually. And she just 
she every day she was she or every time we met she would talk about how she would just she gave herself a promise to journal to herself every day because she was touching in with her own the own reality of her emotional expression she was tending to herself through that journaling so sitting and journaling some some days for her she would journal like three sentences some days it would be like three pages but every day she kept that promise to herself of touching in with her emotional world on the page um and so there's that um you know, I don't think we can forgive before we're ready to forgive either. I don't I don't think you can force forgiveness. That said, there are some practices for forgiveness. The um, Hawaiian forgiveness prayer, whose name I can never pronounce, but it's like Hopanopanopo or something. Um, if you Google Hawaiian, Hawaiian forgiveness prayer, you can find that. But like, I would, you know, in my, in my particular opinion, you know, a month after this would be too soon to try to forgive and try to find forgiveness. I mean, I would touch into your rage right now. Um, And I would, you know, this is shadow work in a way, right? Like when you say I need to alchemize the feelings of agony, despair, and injustice, I I almost hear I need to repress them. I need to be not in touch with them. Um, And the thing is they're going to be in charge right now and they're going to be in charge kind of for as long as they want to be. And part of the practice is like getting in touch with those feelings and not demonizing them. Um, what I'll leave you with is, um, there's this woman, Sahara Rose, who runs, uh, she does a bunch of stuff, books and, you know, programs and stuff, but she has a podcast called The Highest Self Podcast. And she recently went through a divorce and she talked, she's been talking a lot about healing from heartbreak. Um, and so she did have a podcast recently that was like seven steps from healing from heartbreak. And that might give you like some specific, very specific tools that could be a good resource for you. But what I would leave you with is like, this is going to explode like a volcano in the way that it wants to. And that's why I think it is, we can't control this sort of agony or despair after a rupture like this necessarily. That's why I do think it is important for you to have a separate space so that you can do this as much as possible for the sake of your son, um, you know, in a space that's free of entanglement with your ex. Um, I just don't see any way. That, that you guys could, maybe I'm sure every situation is super unique. And so maybe, you know, there is a way that this can hang for you, but I would be super resentful and I would hate him all the time. And that, that would permeate my entire household. And I think it's totally worth thinking about getting your own house. I'm so sorry that this happened. I hope this is a little helpful. Sahara's podcast should help a little bit more specifically with a little bit more how, but I'll leave you with that. And I'm sending you a lot of love too. And yeah, one day you'll fucking write a book about this for sure. And it'll be awesome and I'll buy it. Um, okay, this is the very last question, everybody. We did it. Let me see if this is the very last question, I think. Um, I'm very interested in tarot and I think it could be a great tool for me, but I'm having trouble moving past the fear that I'm calling in negative or demonic energy by using the cards. This is this fear is probably a remnant of my Catholic upbringing where witchcraft was strictly forbidden. Any tips? Totally get it. I personally have a lot of people in my life who are Catholic or who were raised Catholic who are scared of tarot for the very same reason um, and are scared of manifestation or anything like that. Um, do you fuck with angels? <laughs> I'm trying to think what I know about Catholicism. And when I say fuck with, I mean, just like, do you believe in angels? Um, Angels are in religion, right? Like, the best I can advise is that you think of tarot as the cards through which, like, angels are speaking their wisdom to you. 
or whatever higher deity you might believe in now. Um, But specifically, what I might offer, like in a very specific example to you, is to get a tarot card, a tarot deck that was designed for children. Um, They're not going to be super hardcore. They're going to be like playing cards or something. Um, I got my niece like a tarot for kids deck. I wish I could remember exactly off the top of my head what it was called. Um, There is a great tarot for the inner child deck that I've used too. Again, blanking on the specific name. But if you Google like tarot for children, tarot for the inner child, you should find these resources. And just go back to whatever age like you were when like kind of like adults were telling you that like demons and the devil were coming for you. And... Um, find a way to like have a lighter tarot experience. So finding a really playful deck, um, a deck that has only positive interpretations, um, a deck that is meant for children that's super like easy and fun. I have not taken this course, um, but Susanna Conway is a course creator I really respect. And she, I know, did a course like Tarot for the Inner Child. So that might be something you want to check out because I bet that's going to be super fun and playful and reconnect with that aspect too. Um, and yeah, like I, a lot of people, even people who weren't raised Catholic that I, that are in my audience or that I work with are scared of tarot. <laughs> um, they're scared it's going to, you know, tell them something horrible is going to happen to them or, or whatever, right? Um, or be like really dark and, you know, there's, it is a little scary getting in touch with universal energies, right? Like most of us have been conditioned to really think that that's unsafe or scary or, um, you know, getting in touch with like dark energy or dark side or whatever. And, um, I'm not saying that those energies don't exist, uh, necessarily in the world, but I think through tarot, you're really calling on support systems that are higher than you. Um, and, and just remembering that and and making it as playful as possible. Um, shoot, I was going to say something and I totally forgot. Well, it'll come to me later. Um, but doing whatever you need to do to have like as gentle an experience with tarot and starting with like a kid's deck could be a really great place to start and just not forcing yourself to do anything. You know, maybe you, you pick one card a week and you don't even ask a question. That might be a really great place to start. It's like, just don't ask questions. Just be like, you know, pick a random card that has no association, no meaning. And you're just like thinking of it like you're studying a language, right? Like, oh, I pulled the seven of pentacles. Oh, this is about patience. Okay, cool. Right? Like, so it doesn't have any direct application to your life. Um, And stay tuned because I think I'm going to like run a more expanded tarot course later this summer. I kind of want to call it like tarot summer camp (laughs) because I I want, um, people to have this playful side of tarot. You're not alone and feeling a little nervous around it or a little bit scared of it. And uh, I think, you know, for me, I've really come through tarot being like a friend and I want to kind of teach that a little bit more to other people too. So I hope that helps. Okay. And I know there are a couple of people who ask questions on Instagram and I'm forgetting them. Let me see if I can do a recall right now of one of them. Cause I know my former client, Martha asked me a question. Oh, I think Martha's question, this is a good one to end on. She's, I think she's like, if you had like one coaching session with one person, like what would you tell them? What would the lesson be? I'm paraphrasing. That wasn't her exact question, but it was along those lines. And I think um, it's going to sound so cheesy, but like, honestly, I think the biggest blocker to everything I've seen in my own life and everything I've seen in my client's life is a lack of worth and a lack of deservingness. And so 
if there's anything you want in life, if there's any way that you can work on believing that you're worthy and deserving of literally everything you want, that would be like the root of the problem to start at and the root the root of the issue. You're not a problem to be fixed, right? Like the conditioning that has taught you that you're undeserving and unworthy is is the problem to be fixed. And that's a really potent one. I mean, like once you start seeing like how much we are encouraged to think that we're undeserving everywhere in life, it's really like, damn, we've been drinking this water since we were zero. Um, and of course, it's hard to think that we're deserving. We'll call people egotistical or narcissistic who who are going after the things they want, who are doing the things they want, who are demanding that they deserve better. Um, and so if I could tell anybody anything, it's that you are inherently worthy and deserving. And, you know, and then it's like, okay, well, again, back to an earlier question, but how? <laughs> how do you start believing that? Um, I have found a variety of, of methods potent for me, but nothing has been so strong with me and my worth than uh, inner child work. And so if I could leave you with anything, um, inner child work is is a portal to deservingness and worthiness. Because even if you can't believe right now that you deserve something amazing, like as your 30-something, 40-something, 20-something, 50, 60, 70-something self, um, you can believe that your seven-year-old self deserved better. And if you filter all the things that you're doing through the lens of that child and what they deserve and what they deserve now, you can start to begin to give that to yourself and understanding that by doing that, you're giving it to them, actually. So I hope that's a little bit helpful. I um, am so grateful for all of the questions and all of your responses. I'm so grateful. I have such amazing listeners who have been with me over years and um, and many more new listeners, hopefully, to come and join the community. Um, if you haven't yet, go ahead and check out the sundaysoother.com slash membership. My membership should be on sale for another till Friday, till Friday, March 31st, at which time the founding members deal expires. You'll always be able to sign up monthly, but those deals are good, y'all. It's like, I don't know, a hundred bucks off like what the price would be or something. So get on in there for the founding members deal. Um, you'll get lifetime access to the Sunday Soother Slack. If you join tier three, you'll get a private online community where I'll do online coaching and answer your questions. And yeah, lots of good stuff out there. So really grateful for all of you all and have a beautiful week ahead. That's it for this week's Sunday Soother. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you have a moment, go on over to iTunes and leave me a five-star review. That's how other people find this podcast and the message of hope and compassionate personal growth I'm hoping to spread to many more people just like you. You can find me on Instagram at Katherine Andrews and find out more about The Sunday Soother at thesundaysoother.com. You can also check out my services, courses, and coaching at katherinedandrews.com. Have a great day ahead.